As you're getting to Ezra, I want to share with you an expression that you've probably heard before. And the expression goes like this. You can't go home again. You can't go home again. And if you haven't heard this expression, the the thought behind this saying is the perception you truly can't go back to the place you once lived. Because when you go back, so much will have changed since you left, it will not be the same place anymore. And, And I bring up this very known saying Because we have the opportunity with this next chapter of the story, and if you're new with us, the story is a 31-chapter narrative of the whole of the Bible. looks like this. This next chapter of the story gives us the opportunity to reflect on the truth of this idiom, whether this, this saying is true through the experience of the Israelites. To kind of catch you up on where we've been, kind of set the stage for where we're going, Israel was once a united nation, and then it divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel fell first to the Assyrian Empire. Much, much later, in 587 BC, the remnant that was left, the southern kingdom of Judah, fell to the Babylonians. Under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar, Jerusalem was conquered. They plundered and then destroyed the temple. They obliterated much of the city, including its walls, and then carted away the best and brightest of Judah's citizens in chains to Babylon. And there, the people of God lived for the next several decades as exiles. They bore the consequences of their rebellion and disobedience against the Lord. This didn't happen out of nowhere. They had seen this coming. God had sent prophets and messengers, encouraging them, warning them to turn around, to turn back. But this was the inevitable consequence of just a repeated and just spiraling pattern of injustice, of idolatry, of just horrific things that were going on within their community and outside of it. So there the people in Babylon as exiles bore the consequence of their disobedience and rebellion. Yet despite being strangers in a strange land, They adapted to their new surroundings and settled down. While they remained in Babylon, many Jews, most, refused to assimilate. They were in Babylon, but they refused to be of Babylon. Many, longing to go home again, held fast to the Lord's promise, also made through the prophets, that though they would face the consequences of their actions, their exile would not be forever. And so many waited and waited Through their doubts, they continued to wait and hold on to their hope in the Lord of one day going home. And then it happened. In 539 BC, the people witnessed the rise of a new empire, the Medo-Persians, with the fall of another, their conqueror, the Babylonians. And that year, 539 BC, proved not only to be a shift in the balance of power among the nations of the world, but a turning point in the journey of Israel as well. And that brings us right to where we want to be, the next chapter of the story. As you've opened up to Ezra, let's turn the page and hear what happens next. We're in Ezra chapter 1, and I'll be starting in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. 
And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with livestock and goods, with valuable gifts in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what you see as we turn the page is from the very beginning of Israel's homecoming, it starts on a high note. We are told that in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia's reign, the Lord prompts the new king to act graciously towards the Jews. Cyrus issues a decree allowing and in fact empowering the Jews exiled in his kingdom to go home to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. Even more than this, King Cyrus equips them with supplies and resources to begin and complete this work. On top of that, he provides them with all of the original articles looted from the temple. I don't know if you caught that. All of the original articles looted from the temple long ago by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus gives to them to take back. And the little footnote that you might have missed right at the start is all of this takes place exactly as the Lord told them it would just as it was prophesied decades before by the prophet Isaiah, prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. Now, just to step back for a second, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in our Bibles, which were originally a single work but are now two books for us, they narrate the key parts of this resettlement and rebuilding project for Israel. This part of the story is contained in those two books And in fact, what you need to understand is the return of the exiles to Israel and the restoration of the capital city of Jerusalem took place over three movements in history. And before I go over those, I just want to point you to your new cheat sheet in your bulletin. It's a different color. It's blue. And this is, again, trying to give you some context to where things are in terms of the history in the Bible and the prophets that are associated with them. The top part's a little bit of review. The bottom part, starting with prophets during the exile and specifically prophets of the return from exile, sort of orient you as to which prophetic books belong with which historical narrative books in the Bible. Just again to give you your bearings. So like I said, as you look at that, this return to Israel, this restoration project, takes place over three movements in the story, in history. The first wave of people returned with Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the grandson of the second to last king of Judah, Jehoiakim. And Zerubbabel was appointed, you see, governor over the people as they went back to rebuild the temple. That's the first wave. Eighty years after that, a second wave of exiles returned with a guy called Ezra. Ezra was a Jewish scribe and priest. And Ezra led a period of spiritual and religious reform among the people. A third wave came shortly after that. It came within the lifetime of Ezra and was led by a man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah was appointed the next governor of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah initiated the effort to rebuild the city walls and gates of Jerusalem. Three movements for all of this work to take place. And this morning, what I want you to know is we're going to be focused on the first stage of this homecoming, the effort led by Zerubbabel that's encompassed in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. We'll address the second and third waves of this resettlement effort that's that's, uh, captured in the latter half of Ezra and all of Nehemiah two weeks from now. So today we're focused on the first wave of exiles who went back. And as you... Sit back for a second. I'm going to summarize 
this part of the story and then kind of reflect back on what we can take away from it. As you heard, the initial wave of exiles returned to Jerusalem with great excitement. If you were to turn in your Bibles to chapter 2 in Ezra, we're actually told that among 50,000 people went back. There's actually a listing in that chapter of all the families who went. And what's important in chapter 2 to see is that their initial homecoming is to be perceived, is to be understood for them as a second exodus. If you remember way back the first time, What's happening, again, is just like their ancestors before them, those who were once exiled are now being freed from the hands of their captors and coming home to the promised land. Instead of being brought up from Egypt, they are coming up from Babylon. And if you remember back to the first exodus, you'll remember that when the people escaped Egypt with treasures, they actually left with stuff to start their new life. Once again, we see here, these sojourners, you didn't miss it, I hope, are carrying with them silver and gold and supplies to begin their life anew as well. This is a second exodus. God is doing it again. And to further emphasize this, once the people make their way back, the first thing they do is repair the altar of God, we're told, and begin to offer sacrifices according to the pattern God commanded his people in the Torah, the law of Moses. And part of this observance we're further told about included the celebration in that moment of what was called the Festival of Tabernacles. The Festival of Tabernacles was also known as Sukkot. It was also known as the Feast of Booths. And it was a holy day, a holiday, commemorating God's gracious deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. This is a second exodus. But in particular, the Festival of Tabernacles celebrated, remembered God's dwelling, his tabernacling among the people through their journey in the wilderness. And so the people who came home in that first wave to Jerusalem followed the tradition of this holiday by living in tents during the days of the festival. And this was a way of identifying with the story with their ancestors of long ago. And and, and the way I would love for you to just fill this out to see this picture that we're given at the start is as these returning exiles made their camp among the ruins of the temple, can you picture it? And offered sacrifices to the Lord. They started again by starting to worship. They started again by starting to worship, and that's not a bad place to start. Can we even imagine what it was like for them? Can we enter into the story between the lines what it was like for them after decades of not being able to worship freely, to be able to worship as they were once accustomed? What was it like to come home and to begin again? I ask this question as a brief aside because sometimes, I know for me and I wonder for you, sometimes I think we take our freedom to worship for granted. I think we take it for granted. I think we take for granted that we can worship whenever we want and however we've been called to. But imagine if we lost that freedom. Imagine if it was taken away from us. Imagine if it was denied to us. Our freedom to worship is not something to be taken lightly. Our freedom to worship is something that many have given their lives in the service of protecting and defending. It's part of what this weekend, Memorial Day, is all about. And so just as, again, as a brief aside, this this moment that's described in the beginning of Ezra, for me, is just a reminder that we should stop assuming that such freedom is a given. And instead, we should always remember our freedom to worship is a blessing. It's a privilege. The people worshiped. They started again by starting to worship. And after a long journey back, what we find out is things moved quickly for those who first returned to Jerusalem. 
From the Lord's provision, they rallied together and then successfully rebuilt the foundation of the temple. And once again, they celebrate this milestone. Things are looking up for this workforce. Just seems to get better and better until they hit their first roadblock. They hit their first roadblock. Their first roadblock in coming home. And that roadblock is their neighbors. Those who have established themselves in Jerusalem while they were in exile. Now, if, you're, if you've been reading this or if you know this story, while their neighbors initially appear to offer help with the temple rebuilding project, it quickly becomes evident as the story unfolds that their motivation is not to help, but to thwart the restoration of Israel back to her true roots. Their intent is to maintain the status quo. And what is the status quo when the people get back to Jerusalem? The status quo is mingling idolatry with the faith of Israel. They want to maintain the status quo rather than seek the pure and singular worship of Yahweh at the expense of their false gods. That this is their motivation becomes clear when, they, when once they can't infiltrate the ranks of the builders, these neighbors turn on them and begin to threaten their working on the building project. They bribe officials to frustrate the progress of their efforts. They stir up local opposition as they publicly question the right of these returning exiles to rebuild the temple at all. And ultimately, they tie up the whole enterprise with a legal proceeding as letters fly back and forth between Judah and Babylon until the building project is indeed shut down for two decades, partially finished, with only the foundation completed. As their work grinds to a halt, so does the focus and the passion of the returning exiles. Since they can't get busy rebuilding the temple, they start doing other stuff. The only thing they think they can do, you know, life. They start building homes for themselves. They start plowing the fields and planting gardens. They start having families and building their careers. And wouldn't you know it, some 16 years later, sidetracked from God's mission because they're so absorbed in their own mission, being back home isn't all that it was supposed to be. Famine is raging the land. Not only is there little rain and therefore little food, clothing is scarce too. Their houses are also falling apart. This is the scene two decades later. But in the midst of this same scene, even as the people may have stopped working for him, the Lord is still working for his people. Yahweh once again sends prophets, messengers, to rouse his people back into action, to encourage them to get back to work. And the two prophets the Lord sends are Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai's message to the people on behalf of the Lord is plain. You could really summarize it in, in like the first three words that are, come out of his mouth. Consider your ways, Haggai says. Your lives are in shambles because the temple remains in shambles. The condition of your lives mirrors your relationship with the Lord. What you are focused on on the outside, the condition of the land, your homes, your crops, is directly related to what's going on inside of you. The famine within, the struggle of your spiritual condition. And Haggai concludes by saying, get your priorities back in order and your life will change for the better. Haggai. Then there's Zechariah. Zechariah also brings a message from the Lord. Zechariah's message, like many of the biblical prophets, lines up with the meaning of his name. 
Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers. And through a series of eight visions, four messages, and two oracles, that's the word and the promise he offers the people to encourage them and rally them. Yahweh, God, remembers. The Lord will complete his temple. The Lord will rebuild his people. The Lord will come and reign over all the nations. Yahweh will see it through. Don't give up now. Don't miss what is about to happen. So what's next? What happened after, the, after that? Did the people respond? Did the temple get finished? Perhaps you already know the answer. If you don't, or you can't remember, I'll share with you how it all works out before I finish the end of my message. But right now, having given you that quick synopsis of what takes place in this first return home, I'd like to reflect on how we can relate to this part of the story. How can we relate to this part of the story? How can we relate to the story of a foundation that was laid for the people of Israel but became one they didn't build on? How can we relate to the story of a foundation laid for the people of Israel, but one they didn't build on? I don't know about you, but just that theme alone hits me hard. Hits me hard. Beloved, all of us, all of us sit here today because of a foundation built by the Lord in our lives. We share that in common. We all sit here today because of a foundation built by the Lord in our lives. Whether our lives got off to a shaky start because we never knew Jesus, and eventually through the sowing of countless seeds of faith, the Holy Spirit reaped the truth of the gospel in our lives, whether that's how the foundation was laid in your life, or whether you sit here today and you were blessed to be born into the faith, a family rooted and committed to knowing and following Jesus, no matter how we got here, in baptism, all of us crossed the Jordan River from the exile of our sin and ignorance and returned to where we belong, to whom we belong, our Creator, our Father, our Savior, and our King. We have come home thanks to the foundation built in our lives through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The question is, are we building on that foundation? Are we building on that foundation or just letting it remain undeveloped in our lives. No matter how we got here, whatever your story is, no matter how we got here, at first, I, I'm convinced we all got off to a strong start. When the foundation gets laid, it's always a strong start. Like the Israelites, at first, our homecoming was glorious, right? Do you remember those days when worship came easy? Do you remember those days when you couldn't get enough of the word of God? When you were on fire, as we like to say, in our passion, in our focus and attention on Jesus in our lives, we all begin with a good and promising start, a solid foundation, and then we hit the wall. We hit the wall. Maybe more than one. What's your wall? Are you looking at it right now? Are you licking your wounds because of it right now? Maybe your wall is opposition that you encountered to your emerging faith. Maybe it were threats. Maybe it was ridicule that you experienced. Or maybe it's just the fact that things changed. Maybe that's your wall. Things in your life aren't the same as they once were. One of the things that we notice in this part of the story, I didn't mention it to you before, but I want to tease it out for you now, is in fact the faith of some of the Israelites diminishes before the delays come in the building project. 
you read carefully, when the first phase of the work on the temple is completed, when the foundation is laid, many, many people celebrate. But interestingly, some, the older generation, we're told, lament. They cry out loud. In fact, it's this confusing scene where people can't really tell the difference because there are people praising and other people crying. Why would people be lamenting? We're told. Because to them, despite all the work done already, the temple is and will only be a shell of its former glory. It's not going to be as good as it once was. My friends, do you sit here today and is the foundation of your faith stagnant because things have changed? Because things in your life, things in this world, things in the worship and practice of the church are not as good as they were before. Is that what's caused you to be stagnant? Maybe it's not opposition that's your wall. Maybe, maybe it's an obstacle that you've faced along the way. Maybe it's a lingering doubt that you just can't let go of. Maybe it's an unexpected crisis that you've experienced. Maybe it's a surprising wound that you're, you've endured in your life. When we hear this story, you have to imagine that some of the people who came back to Israel must have been shocked. Can you imagine it? Shocked when the government stepped in and ceased the building project. How could this happen? We had political backing for this. We had King Cyrus of Persia on our side. We had all the endorsements we needed. If we've lost their support, we're finished. It's over. Isn't it ironic how many people of faith, how many Christians say the same thing as they perceive struggles with our own government? As we see a separation between church and state, which we can debate about its necessity or what it means, how many lament that if we don't have the government on our side, if the government won't support us, if the government won't help the church, then the church is in trouble. Really? Is that where our salvation is found? Like the Israelites, have we stopped building on the foundation given to us because we've encountered a setback we didn't expect? Because we've suffered a personal loss we didn't anticipate? Let me ask you this. When everything does not go according to your plan, do you begin to doubt God's plan? When everything doesn't go according to your plan, do you begin to doubt God's plan? Maybe it's not opposition for you. Maybe it's not an obstacle. Maybe your struggle to build, your absence from work has to do with an unanswered prayer. Maybe it has to do with having to keep waiting for an answer. You've been praying and waiting and praying and waiting. Maybe it's because you're right now sensing you're not gonna get the answer you wanted. Many of the returned exiles were committed to the rebuilding effort. Notice this, provided it was on their timetable, that it went their way. They were willing to wait only so long before they got back to their lives rather than God's life for them. When the work came to a standstill and it didn't look to them like the project was going to be finished, they turned their attention to other things. And as the people gave up their intensity in focusing on God's mission, their lives became filled with their own mission. Eventually, gradually, their will for their lives eclipsed and actually replaced God's will for their lives. I don't know if you know this, but this phenomenon is known in, mil in the military and in the business world as mission creep. It's called mission creep. 
Mission creep is the gradual shift in objectives during a campaign that ultimately result in an unplanned and long-term commitment apart from the mission. In your perceived futility of the Lord's movement in your life and circumstances, have you moved on from being a part of finishing the work Jesus began in you? Where once you made time for God, where once you prioritized your commitment to Christ, have you, in your frustration with the Lord's timing, gotten busy taking matters into your own hands, relying on yourself rather than on him? Is God's mission for your life, this world, still your mission? Or has mission creep gotten a hold of you? Is your life full of busyness and commitments that have nothing to do with God's mission for your life, for this world? Beloved, if we've lost our drive for the kingdom, if you're sitting here today and yes, the thrill of knowing Jesus is gone, if you're here and the spark of your faith has begun to fade or is but a whisper, if the trail of our discipleship of following Christ has gone cold, let us this morning, like the people of Israel, hear the words of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. For they speak not just to them, they speak to us. Let us hear first the words of Haggai, the prophet Haggai, and let us, as we honestly, and I mean that honestly, this morning, not just look superficially, but go below the surface. As we honestly look, will you dare to do that this morning? And many of you would much rather look somewhere else. But if you honestly look at your fragmented, overprogrammed, unfocused, and chaotic life, where you are working so long and so hard and yet not experiencing the fruit, the fulfillment you're hungering for, if you are willing to look honestly, you will hear Haggai's word to us, the same word that he gave to Israel. We're getting it backwards. We're getting it backwards. My friends, if we build our lives out of our life with the Lord, all the rest will follow. I believe Jesus said something similar when he said, seek first the kingdom of heaven and everything else will be added unto you. Everything will come together and be completed. The needed work in us, the needed work through us will get done. The restoration project of our lives will be finished. All that is assured if our, we live our lives out of our life with the Lord. But if you build your life first and then seek to build a life with the Lord, the life you are trying to build will always get in the way of the life the Lord seeks to build in and through you. The life you are trying to build first will always get in the way of the life God seeks to build in and through you. Our work apart from the Lord will always remain incomplete. Don't kid yourself. Our work apart from the Lord will always remain unfinished. And our work from the Lord, apart from the Lord will inevitably fall apart because our solo work, our work on our own can't handle the load. It can't bear the burden. It can't meet the requirements that only the Spirit's work in and through us can fulfill. All the stuff we build here apart from the Lord, we can't take with us. And get in line if you think you're the first person that's gonna prove God wrong on that. All the stuff we build in our lives apart from the Lord, you cannot take with you. 
when you pass from this life into the next, all that remains, all that we can take are the treasures of heaven, the work of Christ in us, the work of Christ through us, harvested through the fruit of the Spirit. That's the stuff that's built for eternity. That's the stuff you take with you. Then again, maybe some of us here, it's not about us taking matters into our own hands. Maybe it's not that we've got things backwards so much. Maybe we're sitting here today and we're taking things into our own hands. We're doing what we're doing because we're just afraid the Lord won't come through. Our doubts overwhelm us, you know? The obstacles just appear to be too great. The challenges before us seem impossible. The odds just don't look to be in our favor. Perhaps it's not even a question of giving up on the Lord. That's not it. It's an issue of giving up on ourselves. And we've tried. We have failed repeatedly so many times. We've backtracked. We've backslid. We've just plain blown it all to hell so many times, man. We are convinced we are on our own. The Lord is done with me. The Lord is done with us. If that's you this morning, and if you're sitting there and that is you, trust me, you are not alone in feeling this way. If that's you this morning, the prophet Zechariah has got a word for you. And that word for them and for us is this. What humanity has ruined, God can rebuild. If the story of Israel as the Lord's chosen people shows us anything, it is this truth. And I mean, no disrespect. I, am, I mean, if you've been following this story, this is why we've gone through the narrative. I, I think we can objectively, with, without discrimination, agree that this is a fact. That this so far has been the story of a people whose life has been marked more by unfaithfulness to God than faithfulness. I mean, if we're talking about scales, it's like this, right? Spanning over some 800 years from the time of Judges, let's just go there, until the time of the exile, this has been the story of a people who in their relationship with God have been more unfaithful than they have been faithful. And I mean, man, just a couple of weeks ago when Jerusalem fell, when the temple was destroyed, when the land was lost, by all appearances, it's game over. I mean, last chance, you're done. Israel had ruined her life and her God-given destiny for the world. And then what happened? Despite all this, the Lord brought them back home. The Lord's restoration work, his rebuilding project began. And even when in the book of Ezra, the story, the project came to a standstill, in that 16-year period of their inactivity because of their perceived awareness of what they thought was God's divine silence, even when that was taking place, the book of Ezra records the Lord was over Israel. Even when the people had stopped working, the Lord was still working. His spirit was active, moving things forward for them, bringing about the necessary events for the unfolding of his story. This isn't a matter of just looking at Israel and going, man, really unfaithful, and God just kept helping them out. Their story is our story. If the ledger of your life, you're like, man, I don't know, unfaithfulness rather than faithfulness, the message that Zechariah gives them is the same message that he tells us. What the Lord starts, he finishes. What the Lord starts, he finishes every time in his time. 
every time in his time. Zechariah says it to the people. Look where you stand, Israel. Look where you are. Where you thought you'd never be again. Don't give up now. Don't get distracted. Don't get discouraged from seeing what the Lord is about to do. The best is yet to come. The work is going to get finished. And you are a part of that work, Zechariah cries. You don't want to miss being a part of what the Lord is about to do. What the Lord is doing even now. You know the really interesting thing about Haggai and Zechariah as biblical prophets? The really interesting thing is they are largely unique for one key reason. The people of Israel actually listen to them. In terms of most of the biblical prophets, the people turn a deaf ear. But when it comes to Haggai and Zechariah, the people actually listen to them. Despite the previous obstacles and delays, the people responded, and here's the end of this, this part of the story, the temple restoration was finished. Now, spoiler alert for two weeks from now, they got this far, but spoiler alert two weeks from now, when we finish this book of Ezra and go into Nehemiah, what we're going to see is even though the temple got finished, the people still missed the point of their homecoming. You see, the returning Israelites, both young and old, were primarily focused on the physical occupation of the land, the rebuilding of the temple. That's why when those things were in jeopardy, when those things didn't come together right away, they struggled and eventually got sidetracked. And this is true even when the literal work was finished. But what they failed to understand, what the prophets made abundantly clear, is the rebuilding of the temple, coming back to the land, was not the point. The physical rebuilding project represented a deeper reality, a covenant expectation and promise. The point was a God-centered life. The point was a God-centered life. Rebuilding the temple wasn't about giving God back his street address so you could have someplace to send his mail. Rebuilding the temple was about allowing God once and for all to take up residence in the lives of his people, in their hearts and minds. Beloved, the Lord doesn't need to build us to build him a house. We know that, right? The Lord wants, the Lord invites, the Lord commands us to make him our home. This piggybacks on where we left off last week in Daniel. I, I made that observation to you and Daniel didn't go back. He stayed. And I think part of the reason he stayed is he got it. It wasn't about the land. It wasn't about the temple. He had lived his whole life and discovered if he had the Lord in his life, he was home. The Lord was his home. And I bring this up because I think today, like the Israelites, we miss the same point as they did. We miss the same point in our understanding of the gospel. You know, and it's interesting to hear this in light of what we've just gone through. We hear Jesus in the gospel of John tell us that in his father's house there are many, many rooms and he goes there to prepare a place for us. We hear Jesus' words in the gospel of John and we turn his words, we turn his work into a reservation for the future rather than an invitation right here, right now in the present. We tell others, knowing Jesus, accepting Christ is all about going to heaven when we die. But my friends, the truth of the gospel, the fullness of God's restoration project is Christ building his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. As we pray, the 
The promise of heaven isn't some getaway destination for later. The offer of heaven, the ongoing work of the Spirit, is the invitation to make our life, to build our house and make our home with God now, today. Don't you see? Is it coming together as we go through the story? Are you, is, it, is it coming into view? The future work that all the biblical prophets anticipate, that future work is in fact the mind-blowing, heart-stopping, life-changing initiative of Pentecost that we're going to celebrate next week, that we've experienced on the other side of Calvary. The future work that all the biblical prophets anticipate is the grand restoration project that Jesus spoke of when he looked at the physical temple in his own day and much to the chagrin and shock of everyone around him said, I'll rebuild it. And when he said those words, he meant that the temple of the Lord, wait for it, would become us, you and me. And if you think Pastor, Crazy's gone, Pastor Chris has gone all crazy this morning, you know, caught up in delusions of grandeur, don't take my word for it. Never do. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and read the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul who was once Saul, who once was antagonistic to Jesus, who once put his life in the hands of the temple in Jerusalem. But when he came to know Christ, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, wrote these words, he declared that our lives have been built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And he adds quickly right after that, that through the presence of the Holy Spirit, we are the temple of the Lord. Paul realized the foundation of his, Christ, of his life had been laid in Christ and he no longer was focused on a temple in Jerusalem because he came to understand that through the grace of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit, he, we are the temple of the Lord. My friends, we have been given the foundation of Jesus Christ. We sit here today and we are forgiven you're forgiven. You, you say that, we repeat, you're forgiven. There is nothing that is God holds over you. You have been forgiven in Christ. You are free. Death does not have the last word in your life. Failure does not have the last word in your life. You are free. There is nothing that can chain you or bind you. Christ has broken all of that for you. You are forgiven, you are freed, and that means you are, are to be fearless do you hear me, church? Fearless. That's the foundation that Christ has laid in your life. You fear nothing because you know Christ and because Jesus knows you. You sit here, we sit here, and we have been authorized. You have been authorized, called, sent. You have been empowered. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you. You have been given authority and power in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, to not only see your life changed, but to change the world. My friends, are we building on that foundation? Are we building on that foundation, on him with our lives? Are we leaving a legacy that will stand the test of eternity? No one is going to care how many cars you have, how nice your house is, how many degrees you got, how much money was in your bank account, any of it. No one's gonna remember they're going to forget. The last person will die and you will be but a memory to those who are here on earth. But love, hope, joy, peace, forgiveness, truth, grace, those acts, that fruit of the Spirit, that has a life that gets even bigger than you. That goes beyond this life and into the next. 
if you're not building your life on the foundation that Christ has given you, what are you building? If your life is not centered on Christ, where is it centered? And how's that working for you? If you sit here today and that's cutting deep, if that's hitting hard, don't lose sight of the other word this morning, the word of the gospel. No matter how we may have ruined our lives, you may sit here and feel like I'm a train wreck. No matter how off-center you may be in your relationship with Jesus, you may feel that you have gone so far one way or the other. No matter how much we may have ruined our lives, no matter how off-center we may be in our relationship with Jesus, hear the word of the Lord. It is never too much. It is never too late for the Lord to rebuild your life. Never. But you gotta understand, spiritual restoration is not some static construction project. It's a work initiated and moved along by the Lord, but we have to be a part of it in order to be impacted by it. So come this morning. We're gonna come to the table in just a few moments. Come and find your way back to the God who has never left your side. The God who works for you even when you stop working for him. We are the recipients of what Zechariah only envisioned, the coming of Christ, the restorative work of the cross, the rebuilding of our lives through the resurrection and the filling of our hearts and minds with the spirit of the Lord. The finishing touches are still to come for sure, but we can't, we mustn't get distracted or discouraged now because we haven't seen anything yet. Hope is rising. The kingdom is coming and we get to be a part of it all. We get to be a part of reconciliation, redemption, forgiveness, grace, faith, hope, and love. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Do you really just want to squeak in? Do you just really want to drag yourself over the, the finish line? Or do you want to experience the journey? Do you want to be a part of what God has invited you into? You know, they say, they, <laughs> they say you can't go home again. That's what they say. But if Israel's story is true, if the gospel is real, if our Father in Christ through the Holy Spirit has indeed made his home with us, then beloved, we can always go back. We can always go back. Our prodigal God is waiting for us, running to us, calling us to make our home in him. Amen.